fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to another episode of Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology and makes it a reality. We do that. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Hey, Dan. Great to be here. I'm very excited for this episode. We're going to a childhood favorite for me. That's good. You know, it's funny. I, I, I'm really excited to discuss re-watching the show, and I want to know what you guys think. And by you guys, I've got to include our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siebser. Ben, where are you broadcasting from this week? You know, Dan, I have found myself in an unusual town that appears to be very ancient, yet it still has all of our favorite modern conveniences. I love it. And I love that you're kind of on the outskirts of this town because it looks very similar to Bedrock. Um, I like what you're doing there, Ben. And, and I got to ask you, both of you guys, I rewatched the show for the first time. Then, and this is a childhood favorite of yours. It's a childhood favorite of mine as well. And I got to tell you, this show felt very different watching it as an adult. Uh, what did you think, Denon? Oh, definitely. I think part of the problem was the first episode seemed absolutely horrible. I like I watched season one, episode one, and I had to just stop. I hate to say that. I think what it is is the later seasons. This is a show that matured with age. I feel like some of the later seasons, the newer stuff. Um, was a little less honeymooner-ish, which I know it was based on, and yeah. just a little more kid-ish. But yeah, that, that first episode was painful. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was, it wasn't honeymooners-ish, it was a, a complete and utter ripoff <laughs> of the honeymooners, <laughs> which was not my favorite show. Fred was kind of a grump, man, I didn't realize that. Uh, ben, were, did you watch this show as a kid? Uh, was this your first time watching it? Where were you with this? You know, I definitely remember watching the Flint, it, the show as a kid. I think I, I'm similar to you guys. I, the first episode was really, it felt old. <laughs> um, and I did not appreciate, I don't know. I don't think laugh tracks should be on cartoons. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, <laughs> this is kind of a cool show in the history of television because this was the first primetime animated sitcom. And it was on for six years, and that record was in place until The Simpsons beat it in 1995, and obviously have <laughs> shattered it from, from here on out. <laughs> yeah. um, but but it, was, it was a very new concept. And, and to your point, Denon, this was made for adults. This was an adult show until they realized that really the kids were starting to, to watch it, and they liked it, and then they shifted the tone of the show completely. Um, so so you, you are right there. But guys, we're, we're going to talk about the technology here, and this, this show is really fun when it comes to technology technology. But right off the bat, guys, I'm going to just roll this thing right off the rails, right at the top of the show. Are you guys ready for that? Okay, we're ready. Okay. So here's what I think. When you're talking about the Flintstones, as always, then, and we got to go right to the theme song. This is a modern Stone Age family. That's what they say. I think that instead of this being a prehistoric show, which is what they want you to believe, this is actually a grim and bleak look at our future, where we have bombed ourselves back to the Stone Age. And someone who remembered the modern creature comforts of our, of our past have really reinvented them using the technology that they have at the time, which is typically stone or animal-based. And, and to me, that's really where I think this show exists, and I think that's the framework we have to look at it. What do you think about that, Dennis? Well, you know, Dan, as you know, I'm slightly more optimistic than you. So I like the idea of this being in the future. 
I'm going to say maybe we didn't actually bomb ourselves into the Stone Age. Maybe we chose to go there. We realized that this is a much more environmentally friendly way to do things. Um, I'm really curious. It's an interesting question. I may give this to my sustainable societies class that I'm teaching um, to compute the carbon impact of using animal-based technology versus electricity-based technology, as we'll discuss later. Uh, but I noticed, you know, they don't need windows. Their houses are nicer. It's a really fascinating design concept. Stone has interesting thermal properties. So I'm maybe thinking this was an environmental choice, Dan, not so much a nuclear holocaust situation. There, you also have to consider that, you know, we are going to run out of fossil fuels at some point. And, you know, this this may just be what happens as a result of that. You know, electricity will not go on forever. Our certainly uh, oil and gas based vehicles will not go on forever. So we, we will need to adapt like these the Flintstones have. What better way to make fossil fuels than have your own dinosaurs and create your own fossils, right? <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, you know, this is also clearly a post-Jurassic Park civilization yeah. as they've genetically engineered the dinosaurs to return with the added twist. I mean, imagine Jurassic Park, not just as an amusement park, but as a way to design creatures with the abilities we're going to discuss in this show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean... It- the, the fact that there are dinosaurs and humans coexisting, that alone tells you it has to be in the future because that never happened <laughs> in the past. So it must be yeah. the, that these dinosaurs we see are the descendants of the domesticated zoo dinosaurs uh, that we've now turned into cranes and, uh, and garbage disposals. You know, and I think that there might be something to that, Ben, but also I have the suspicion that through nuclear holocaust, we've actually recreated the environmental conditions that existed when dinosaurs were around, and maybe there is either brand new evolution, or I actually like what you said, and maybe this is the evolution from the the park dinosaurs. It could be either way, but one last little, I'm going to leave you with these last parting words, especially to you, Denon, our eternal optimist, to add a little bit more credence to, to my nuclear holocaust theory, and that is, when you look back in the 50s and you look at the giant, the movies with the giant bugs you know you've got them beginning of the end and even godzilla radiation created these gigantic creatures and as we see all the meat in this show is absolutely gigantic and i'm not saying they're eating gigantic bugs but they're definitely eating gigantic dinosaur ribs steaks bones you know i know dinosaurs were big but these pieces of steak are really really big so i'm gonna leave you with that parting parting little thing there but at the very least we can all agree that this is an extremely analog civilization and the first thing we're going to look at are some of the analog equivalents to our modern technology and i think none is more apparent than the cars themselves um denon i know you've got a real real question with how the physics work on these well it's interesting dan you know my memory from childhood is that they drove the cars by running the entire time with their feet, which reminded me of the little car I had as a kid that you just, you know, drive around with your feet, which is actually quite exhausting. Um, And, you know, if that's your only choice for a car, why not just walk everywhere? But I watched closely because, you know, this is about analysis. I'm learning from you, Dan, as the analytical mastermind. Uh, And they only run to start the cars. And then the cars drive. And then they use their feet to stop them. Or as in the opening sequence, Fred does so brilliantly, he just crashes it into the back of his garage based on the sound, (laughs) um, which is an amazing way to stop. So I, I think the problem to solve here is 
what what is the actual engine mechanism that works based only on running to start? And I have some thoughts, but I, I like to hear what our engineer has to say on that. You know, first of all, I think we also need to think about the inertia of these rollers that we see on the vehicle. You know, th- those are solid granite cylinders that are you know probably seven feet long and two feet in diameter. You know, those things are going to weigh uh, three to four thousand pounds each, and so you know. You might have trouble getting it to start, but I think it's well established in the Flintstones universe that all of these uh, cave people must be incredibly yoked because look at their their hurling stone slabs as the newspaper like they're nothing. They're they're pushing their, you know, 6,000 pound cars with their feet. You know, these are very strong people. And if you had a, a cylinder with that kind of rotational inertia and forward inertia, I think it would probably roll for a very long time without you having to stop it. I, I like that idea, Ben. I also like your point of their strength. One of my favorite things to rewatch was Barney um, actually breaking his newspaper when his wife shouted his name at one point in an episode um, just by squeezing it a little hard. Um, crushing granite rock newspapers in your hands is clearly unrelated to the car <laughs> issue, Dad, but just yeah, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. The, the one thing I will tell you that, that I, I think may help out with this is we see Barney work underneath the hood of his car. Now, I will say that he has a car that looks to be made out of a log with two sharpened ends. <laughs> so he may have a different model. And in the first episode, we do see him make a flying contraption. So I think that they at least have some concept of gears and maybe there might be some kind of transmission. So I would imagine it's similar to, you know, like a 10-speed bike. When you're trying to go uphill or when something's really hard, you have the ability to use different gear ratios to help speed that along. So you're not taking a 6,000-pound dead stop car into motion with just your feet. Is that possible, Ben? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think also another thing to think about is there could also just be different versions. I mean, Barney clearly has a... Um, small stone wheeled model, you know, there's probably maybe some bicycle pedal kind of stuff going on inside of that one versus the foot foot powered uh, model that Fred has. I mean, Fred's kind of the bully. He'd have like the SUV inertia, (laughs) big heavy model, whereas Barney, you know, I mean, that's the vehicle that is his uh, wife uses too. you know, maybe the well, I don't know. We see the wives pretty strong as well. So you know, maybe, you know, we shouldn't get that into that. But, you know, I think that, you know, Barney maybe has a more luxury model that's, you know, you get to just pedal it and you don't have to use your feet to uh, power it directly. I, I mean, that's that's interesting. I will tell you that, you know, I think all in all, Ralph Nader would have a field day back then. You know, they clearly didn't learn the mistakes that that he tried to set right in the 50s. Um, and, and also we see a limousine in one of the episodes that has several people pedaling it. Uh, so I don't know if maybe horsepower is kind of recalculated to be human power, and then that would tr- like translate into how heavy the car is or easy to push. Because I imagine that would have to be a selling point: is how easy is this thing to get, you know, to 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 speed, you know? For sure. I mean, in some ways, though, I think that's also just the ev- evolution of the bicycle that we see uh, in you know the party towns where you have eight people pedaling between the bars on their. I, I thought you stumbled. I didn't know what a barcicle was. I thought I was going <laughs> to... I, I thought he stumbled yeah. too, but when he explained it, I'm like, oh, that makes a lot yeah, of yeah. sense. You know, I, and I do think there is a chance there's some sort of internal combustion engine here. They clearly have fire. 
Um, they do eat and cook lots of things. Um, and as I remember from my old, old VW Bug, um, you could get it push started. So you could move it along and pop the clutch and, and start all the cylinders igniting. I, um, you know, you don't necessarily need a battery and electricity to start the car. So that may be a little bit what's going on in some of the models. Um, and we, we see, uh, you know, Barney as a bit of an inventor creating his flying copter. So maybe his car is more of a starter model like that. Whereas, you know, Fred really relies on the inertia of those big stone cylinders to um, get momentum and keep going. So I, I like the idea of a lot of different versions of the car here. Because there are some that make noise like an engine. You just have to realize that. Yeah. I mean, we have to also think about the fact that in a world without like mass electricity and, and metals and alloys and things like that, you know, you're not going to have production lines. You know, everything's probably custom and built by uh, and kind of engineered on individually in the garage. So Barney, who's clearly an inventor, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we see all this gear work for his flying machine. It seems quite logical that the car that him and his wife use has the same technology in it. Uh, versus Fred being kind of bigger and dumber, and he just gets some big old rocks, uh, rock cylinders and <laughs> makes that into a car. Yeah, I have a fundamental question about Barney's car, though. Very early in the season, there's an episode where you know he's dropping Fred off. Fred says, thanks for the ride. I'll drive tomorrow. And as far as I can tell, there is no room in Barney's car for another human being while he's sitting there. So is this like an expandable log? Do either of you have an explanation for how you carpool in the one-seater log car? <laughs> That's a sports model is all I can imagine. It, it looks like when uh, Wilma and Betty were in it, uh, to go to the opera, they were comfortable. Uh, now, I don't know how all four of them would have gone to the opera together in that car, though. That's a good question. I don't know. There don't seem to be a lot of seats, uh, but I imagine if you need an extra seat, you would just carve one out of the, the frame. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I had to choose. I like that. Maybe you just sit side saddle on the back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, now, one of the other technologies that, I, that I, I'm curious about, because I'm curious what you guys think about this, because it seems impossible, and that is televisions. I actually thought they would have had someone come in and kind of talk behind the television, you know, like how when you're a little kid, <laughs> you've got a big cardboard box, and you just kind of like have like a little puppet show or whatever. But they seem to actually be transmitting things. I'm curious, what would be the physics of how, how this would work? Well, I do think, Dan, what it shows is they may not have electricity for power, but they still have an understanding in a weird way of their phones and TV. These are both things, you know, phones, you convert sound into an electrical signal and then back to sound. And TV, you convert images into electromagnetic radiation and then back. And a lot of that now, you know, we know is done with digital silicon-based technology. And we know what silicon is. It's basically a rock. Dan. And so I just envision that they have this large rock TV that is one big integrated silicon chip that's the receiver and generator um, for these signals. And, and that's how it works. Now, the, the other interesting thing is that they take seriously the idea of rabbit ears. 
Um, there is there is at least mm-hmm. once in the series where Fred is trying to improve the signal, and he has a literal rabbit on top of his rock TV, and he's moving the ears and the entire rabbit around at points to get it to come in. So yeah. uh, there clearly is an electromagnetic wave um, piece to this for the transmission, but I think the core technology is just normal silicon technology, but at the rock scale, not the wafer scale. You, you know, with the, with the rabbit, I got a... Well, one that also does show us that, again, this is in the future because rabbits were not around in the uh, dinosaur age in the past. So (laughs) just some more evidence of uh, futurism here. Um, I think also, but the fact that the rabbit is being used to gather the signal, maybe it's not an electronic, but maybe it's some sort of sound base where those big floppy ears of the rabbit are able to pick up this auditory signal that humans can't hear and maybe then it's using its foot to tap down to another animal that's like arranging the pictures inside oh i love that ben that's brilliant i mean i will say though i remember the days of rabbit ears like you know metal rabbit ears real antenna and when you would touch the antenna as a human you were a conduit for that electromagnetic radiation and you know i'm sure all of you have had the experience where you would just grab the antenna and the the picture was perfect, and then you had to kind of stand there for a while while you watched the television, you know? So it could be, he could be the conduit. I don't know. No, he could, but I do like this sound um, idea that Ben's bringing up because it it relates to so many other elements we see in the show of animals that are tapping or making noises or doing things. It gets us more in that analog feel, Dan, that I know you so love. Now, speaking of analog here, I, I want to talk about some of the biological replacements for technology that kind of exist in the show, because those are really, that's really the fun part of this, where animals kind of take the place of electricity. That's what I, w- I want to talk about first. And I have to say, human beings have a history of this. You know, we have really used animals throughout you know human history to do things for us to be mechanical work. And so this does not surprise me that we would continue this on into the future. But, you know, one of the real questions is, is there a prehistoric PETA? Because a lot of these animals seem to be abused. Some of them are unionized. But I wonder what's going on in the animal world to allow this to happen. Uh, more of a secondary question, uh, but I do love that dinosaurs is heavy machinery. So what do you guys think about all that? I'm going to go to you first, Ben. What, what do you think about this? Well, one, I mean, it's obviously a it's obviously something that we've been doing since maybe even prehistoric times. You know, there's all sorts of things of, you know, oxen being used to run mills um, before we really figured out uh, water power and other things. I do wonder if there are things like uh, mills and uh, windmills and water mills uh, in this future, because I mean, we don't, I don't think we ever see it. I think the, the visual gag of the dinosaurs doing the work is a lot funnier. Uh, but, you know, you, you have to wonder why that they're using animals. Like, is this a world that now is so hot, you know, that global warming's taken over, that there's not really any good running water anymore, that it's all just in lakes and oceans at this point? Hmm. Oh, I like that idea, Ben. Dan, I do want to go back to your comment uh, about, uh, you know, representation for the animals. More evidence that it's the future. The animals talk. Mm. Um, yes. And, you know, there is there's an interesting, you know, conversation between a monkey and a bird um, as part of a record player at one point. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and actually, in fact, there's many cases where the monkeys are talking quite clearly and eloquently. Um, and so this is all evidence, I think, of the futureness of this and the genetic engineering and or evolution that went into it. Um, but it is a it, it is. 
you know, I, I love this idea um, I'm more and more of, you know, global warming versus, okay, maybe a nuclear holocaust, but, you know, I think more of the global warming, as Ben pointed out, the climate is probably well adapted to somehow using these animals. And many of them are dinosaur-based, um, which all did exist at a much, much higher temperature, average temperature for the Earth in the past. So they're well adapted for this future. And the people don't seem to need to wear much clothing or worry about heating or anything like that, and their windows are all open. So this is all coming together for me, Dan. I love how this is working. Well, I will tell you, I think that there is a little bit of nuclear holocaust could cause global warming. So let's let's not let's not oh, yeah, no, let's no, not no, count no, out nuclear that. holocaust. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> all right, I, I I think though back to the animal welfare that Dan got us back to you all you. You know, we see the classic "it's a living," you know, dinosaur. <laughs> you know, you know who's working as the garbage disposal. Right. And I think you have to imagine that if these animals are so were genetically engineered to be intelligent, we saw this in Jurassic Park. You know, the Indominus. Uh, oh no, the Indoraptor was this like was human level smart. And so we've just given them vocal cords, too. And, you know, they can negotiate. You know, this is their job. Well, I often wonder, you know, you make up you bring up a good point there, Denon, about the in the record player, you've got a turtle and a bird playing the record. And I wonder if they've taken a a cue out of the entertainment world's book. And I wonder if each one of them are individual unions. So instead of an animal union, there's a record holders union and a record players union, which I feel like that could happen because we do see them go on strike at one point. But, you know, one of the things that makes this possible, I remember seeing there's a remote control that Fred buys. He buys a universal remote. And so when he hits the button, a little bird comes out goes to the television, changes the channel, and then comes back into the remote. You know, we've got homing pigeons. This is not outside the realm of possibility with classical conditioning that we know. Um, So I I really like this. What do you think about that? Well, I particularly like it. It, You know, it ties into one of my favorite scenes where he sends something airmail and a bird flies out of the mailbox, right? So, and and actually makes a comment to Fred that he didn't need to shout so loud. He heard him, Um, (laughs) which is what my family is constantly telling me, Dad, you don't need to be quite so loud. We heard you. So I related to that moment. Um, but it, it's there's so much of those, I think, sort of clever, you know, pick the, the animal whose adaptation seems to work for this. You know, whether like we've talked about, you know, the saw c- cutting those huge chunks of meat because they're not, you know, very small where Wilma uses basically a sawfish type situation. Um, and, you know, again, the long brontosaurus neck dinosaurs for lifting the rocks and doing that work. It's, it's a fascinating way they, they fit it all in. Well, I will tell you, my, so my favorite invention is their camera. And so what I love about this is it's a camera that's basically a hollowed out you know, rectangle. And inside is a smaller piece of slate and a bird. And the bird takes a look at what's going on through the camp, the front of the camera, and then uses his beak to punch out that picture on a piece of slate. This is not really outside the realm of possibility because as we know, birds have incredible eyesight. So if you wanted to have an animal that was going to peck peck out a picture, uh, peck a pickled peck picture, th- what better way than, than a bird? You know, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I mean, that's exactly right. A- uh, birds, are birds have some of the best eyesight of the animal kingdom i think the only thing there is we they've clearly engineered uh woodpeckers into being stone peckers mm. uh so that they can uh both do the camera but also we see in another episode uh there's a typewriter where the bird is just hopping along the top of the typewriter ledge and and 
pecking the words into a slate that's going through the machine. It does make me wonder, Dan and Ben, you know, like from an efficiency point of view, they use wood some of the time. So it's interesting that they choose not to just use regular woodpeckers and for the typewriter in the picture, make it in wood. But I think there's a recognition, you know, that stone is much more long lasting. And once you build up the strength to carry stone around, why do you need paper? Yeah. I wonder if this is another climate thing where back in the dinosaur times, uh, trees were not the kind of trees we have today. They were they were closer to like ferns and palm trees and things like that. So, and so I'm curious if the uh, traditional hardwooded trees that we're used to today just can't exist in this new climate. I mean, it's an interesting idea to, to think about because, uh, you know, when it comes to adaptations, when it comes to evolution and when conditions change, the, the animals change, right? That's what evolution is. And, you know, Denon, you kind of alluded to this earlier, which is that the other category is animals that they're using their own adaptations for, meaning, you know, you have a pigosaurus, uh, which apparently is a, a dinosaur, a, a pig type dinosaur, <laughs> and as their garbage disposal. Like, this is brilliant because what I like about this is both both animals are benefiting. This is true mutualism I- as far as I'm concerned, uh, as opposed to when we see the mammoths being taken advantage of and they're really using their trunks to spray water for their showers or to water their lawn. Or they're using, uh, you know, or they're they're heating the the mammoth with a campfire underneath his belly to make hot water. That seems a little more abusive than the pigosaurus or even the dinosaur that mows the grass. What, what do you think about that, Denon? Well, I definitely think, you know, just the basic use of the mammoth to spray water, probably not too abusive and bad. Heating its belly, lighting it on fire to make warm water. First of all, I'm not sure it'll work. And second, that is problematic. Because actually, I, I don't think the way they do these, I don't know if the water actually gets into their belly when they are spraying themselves. I think they suck into their trunk and spray it out. But I, I have to admit, a little ignorance on biology there. The other thing is, using a mammoth as a vacuum I find highly abusive. Making any animal suck up dirt through its nose is probably not what they want to do. What I do find fascinating, there's evolution throughout the show, because in the very first or second episode, when Fred is asked to wash his hands, he actually leans out his window to a basically waterfall that's outside the house. That is Hmm. kind of the indoor plumbing. And later they clearly upgrade to the mammoth version of generating water. So there is even some evolution within the show. Yeah, it's interesting that it seems like the mammoths, yeah, because I get maybe it's just another genetic tinkering that's gone on because certainly mammoths and elephants as we know them, you know, they they basically fill their nose with water and then blow it out. The, you know, the water is not going anywhere but the trunk. So, <laughs> you know, the fact that they can do a continuous spray implies that uh, there's some tinkering going on there that uh, we don't know about. Well, what I like about that is I think you're exactly right, Ben, is, you know, look look at household dogs nowadays, right? I mean, they were, we've domesticated them from wolves. Some dogs look like wolves. Some look like, uh, you know, small little rats you can fit in a teacup, right? And no, no offense to teacup chihuahuas. I think they're adorable. But, you know, my point is we've, we can change the way they look and, and a lot of the biology. So it would make sense where you could actively or, you know, even passively evolve a mammoth to have a, 
water reservoir in its cranium or something like that. I don't see that as outside the realm of possibility uh, to, to, to do this. And even, you know, even the Pigasaurus, giving him four stomachs like a cow maybe so he can make sure that if you have a really heavy dinner night that a lot of stuff's going into the disposal, he can handle it all. You know, I think that that's, that's pretty doable, don't you think, Ben? Absolutely. Or maybe you, you know, you have a backup uh, Pigasaurus that comes in when uh, on, for, for parties. <laughs> <laughs> the rich have a series of have several pigasauruses yeah. just in case, you know. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting thought as well. I mean, for for sure, the one thing we have to consider is that a lot of there's a lot of animals that need to be taken care of, and so either we're living in harmony with our, with animals finally, or we've really achieved true enslavement of, of animals, which is would be a horrible vision of the future. But as you know, Denon, that apparently is is how I view the future, especially when it comes to the Flintstones. Yeah, but I I, I do think you know. Many of the animals do seem to express some level of joy, so that's good. But as we said, many of the other animals seem quite tired, um, and I wonder, you know, how, how they're really viewing all of this. Yeah, or what the payment structure is, you know, for sure, as you mentioned, Ben. It's a living, right? Yeah, it's a living. But, and we see, it, se- it certainly seems like the saber-toothed cat is uh, not very happy with uh, Fred. So we got to wonder how the, the, they're being treated. Oh, I, that just struck me as general cat behavior. Um, that, you know, <laughs> leave, leave the owner outside, jump in and be warm, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you guys mentioned the cat because we've arrived at our airs, additions, and omissions section. Things we want to talk about, um, but we we didn't have time to. Denon, did you have anything that we missed on the Flintstones? Well, I have one big one, Dan, and my kids noticed this as we were rewatching it. You know, when when Fred and Barney start their drive-in restaurant, um, they the only customer that I really see orders um, a large order of ribs. And my kid just sat there going, there's no meat on the ribs. There's, there's like no meat. They're just bones. So not only do they have large animal meals, sometimes yeah. they have large animal meals with no meat. Um, so clearly there's some genetic engineering going on there to eat the bones. Um, there's also I, there's a great line by Wilma at one point where she's out cooking under uh, cu- cooking an open flame barbecue, and she makes the comment, I have all these modern conveniences in the house, and here I am cooking the old-fashioned way over an open flame. It really, you know, kind of captures the show and it, and it's and, and it's as you know sentiment so well at that moment. So th- those are two of my main ones there. I really enjoy th- with that also that while it's uh, outside over a flame, she still has the modern convenience of an animal roti- powered rotisserie. <laughs> so you know she yeah. at least at the very least you know auto rotisseries on your grill are not you know i don't feel like that's a very common convenience you know i haven't bought a grill recently but maybe no, i don't i don't think they have those as standard i, th- I don't think that's no true. i think that's a, that's a pretty uh, posh upgrade if you ask me <laughs> yeah well i also want to talk about those ribs you know uh, there's the classic uh, shot of the car tipping over with when the ribs are put on the side by the uh, the car hop and it, it kind of goes back to the how engineered are these animals? Because in order for something like that to happen, those ribs alone would have to weigh, you know, somewhere between 10 and, you know, 40,000 pounds, kind of depending on how far out that uh, tray was from the uh, edge of the roller uh, to make the, the full, you know, to get the teeter totter to tip over. Um, and we estimate brontosauruses in total only weigh 30 to 50,000 pounds. So clearly, we have much, much bigger 
Brontos in this world because they got away way more than uh, the classic dinos did. It's the radiation, man, if the 50s have taught us anything. Uh, well, I've got a couple of corrections here, guys. So first of all, Love Potion number nine. Then, and this was for you, that was Sandra Bullock's fourth movie, but 10th project overall, if you include TV movies and TV series. Just a ah, correction there. Thank you. Thank you for that correction, Dan. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Another one, Moving Walkways that we talked about in the Jetsons were actually introduced in the 1893 Columbia's Exposition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair. And if you're a fan of my other podcast, Fascinating Nouns, you'll know that I am fascinated with that particular fair because so many different inventions came out of that one World's Fair, including the the smorgasbord and buffet dining and the Ferris wheel, which is incredible. Then in another one for you, I goofed it up. The song from the Jetsons is actually Eep, Op, Ork, Aha. I, I did it incorrectly in the in the show. W.C. Cogswell looks exactly like Nate Slate, who is Fred Flintstone's boss, and W.C. Cogswell is obviously Cosmo Space Lee's arch rival in the Jetsons. Um, you mentioned the, the saber-toothed tiger. Well, his name, and I'm not making this up, is Baby Puss, and he's only seen in a handful of episodes. He's hardly in the TV show. His main claim to fame is that ending sequence, and for some reason, I'm going to admit this to you guys, I was totally, completely troubled by that ending sequence where he puts the cat out, the cat jumps inside, and then puts Fred out on the front doorstep, and then Fred can't get back inside. For some reason, this really troubled me, and I never understood why Fred didn't just jump in the window like the cat did. I, I didn't really understand that. Um, and one other thing here, Rosie in the Jetsons, and in the Jetsons, uh, I watched the Jetsons meet the Flintstones, right? I realized that Rosie calls George Jetson Mr. J, and it sounds exactly like Harley Quinn from the Batman the Animated Series, which is really interesting. And the last one here, I mentioned how Elroy has those deep, dark, black pits for eyes. Who knows what lurks behind the mind of Elroy? But you'll also notice that Wilma and Barney both have those same eyes, so I wonder what's going on there. And lastly, we didn't talk about the Flintstones merchandise, which decades later people are still buying, whether it's Flintstone vitamins or those disgusting fruity or cocoa pebbles, which seem to go from crunchy to a gooey sludge from the time it takes for you to pour milk over them to the time the bowl is filled. Uh, I've never liked fruity or cocoa pebbles. I don't know what's going on there. And we haven't even talked about the power of Bam Bam, but we'll save that for another episode. But of course, if we've missed anything, anything at all that you want to talk about, you can get in touch with the show. We're on Twitter at Pod. We're on Facebook at FGGBT. And if you're listening to this and want to watch it, you can watch us on YouTube. We can find that on the website FGGBT.com. But you can get in touch with us individually. Denon, where can people find you? So people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. It's just at Denon Michael. You just flip my name. And then if you want to get me on Facebook, you stick a prof in there at Prof Denon Michael. Ben. Where can people find you? You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. How do you spell that? B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn on, on Instagram at the Daniel J. Glenn on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind. If you suddenly find yourself in a Stone Age world without the conveniences of modern technology, please do not enslave the local fauna and force them to do your mundane chores. Be nice to animals, because you know who isn't? Supervillains. And remember, you want to be a superhero. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glenn Co. production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. 
the fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, if you like this show, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? The good news is we're on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and now Spotify. If you're not already on those platforms, don't worry. We've made it very easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. That's fgbt.com, where you will find links to everything you're looking for. All the subscribe buttons at the bottom of the page. Links to our social media are right there. And if you go to the top of the page, you'll see a little button that says episodes click on that and go to your favorite episode there you can find the show in its entirety you can find the links that we talked about the in real life examples that we brought to you including videos and of course we've got each episode has its own youtube video you can watch it there if you prefer and if you like this show you're gonna like everything that i do go to danieljglenn.com to find out more thank you for listening